Assalamu alaikum, may peace be upon you, brothers and sisters. My name is Linda Sarsour, and I am one of the national co-chairs for the Women's March on Washington. I stand here before you, unapologetically Muslim American, unapologetically Palestinian American, unapologetically from Brooklyn, New York. Sisters and brothers, you are what democracy looks like. Sisters and brothers, you are my hope for my community. Hello there and welcome to the Existential Podcast. Welcome to those of you that are in Canada, those of you in Indonesia, New Zealand, Australia, Chile, the UK, France, Greece, Thailand, all over the world. You have downloaded and listened to the Existential Podcast, and I am so excited that you have done so. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you so much for being a listener to this content. Now, listen, the voice you just heard was uh, the voice of Linda Sarsour, and you heard her speaking at the Women's March, which she is the co-founder of. And she was gracious enough to join us as a guest for Episode 7 of this podcast. She is joining me from the streets of Detroit. Took some time out of her busy schedule to talk to us. And I just want you to sit back and listen because this will be one that I think is really challenging for all of us, but especially for those of us who like all the coloring to be done inside the lines. Those of us who like nice, neat, non-messy, seamless intersections. I think this will be challenging and disturbing to all of us in all of the right ways. So I'm really excited for you to hear this conversation. I mean, I'm just excited you're listening to episode seven of Existential. So without further ado, all over the world, let's get into it. This is Existential, the podcast that reminds us that we're human first before we're anything else. And from that place, we can hear each other's stories and experiences as we wrestle with issues of justice, faith, and culture. I'm your host, Corey Leak. Thanks for listening. All right, folks, today on the podcast, taking time from her extremely busy schedule is Linda Sarsour. Uh, and Linda is a proud uh, Palestinian Arab Muslim from Brooklyn, Brooklyn stand up. Uh, Linda, are you a, are you a uh, Knicks or Yankees or Nets? Or, I mean, are you fans of any of those teams? Oh, now you're trying to get me in trouble. But, uh, <laughs> I'm actually a New York Knicks, New York Giants, um, and New York Yankees fan because I just follow whatever my son, whatever my son's a fan of, I'm a fan of. Okay, got you. Well, so then it's kind of a dark time in <laughs> yes. New York right now. Just a little, a little bit, a little bit. It's been a while. I mean, listen, from the days of Patrick Ewing, I mean, we haven't been doing really well. That's just exactly. And then Kevin Durant came out and was like, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of disrespectful to the Knicks. That's a little something. You you bringing up too much stuff. You're triggering me. (laughs) It's too much. It's too much. Like right off the bat, like I'm I'm welcoming you to the show, and I'm I'm talking crazy right away. (laughs) Uh, Well, 
Thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Um, you're also a mother of, of three. Um, and so we, we met uh, a couple weeks ago. We met at this taping for our mutual friend, Ben McBride, who I hope is listening. Ben, you and Michael should both be listening. I want you to be a guest soon. Um, but we met and like, I, I would just say, when you walked in the room and started talking, I was like, she owns the room. Like she talks with a confidence and a conviction that like was just so inspiring and impressive to me that I instantly thought I want to have her on the podcast if I can. And I was just really blown away that you were willing to, to do it. So thanks for being on. I really, I just really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. So, well, so let me ask first, um, you are an activist, but you're also a parent. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it like raising children as an activist? Like, do you expect them to share all of your beliefs as they grow older? Do they share all your beliefs as they're getting older? Like, is there any challenges or, or is, is it just all rewarding all the time being a parent and an activist? I mean, I am really grateful to be a parent of three incredible young people who actually, thank God, do share my values and principles. And I think it's because um, as parents, we have modeled those uh, to them, their grandparents and others around them. Um, We live in a great community and I have a great community of organizers and activists around me that my kids have been around. Uh, So they've absorbed. And so my kids, uh, my son is a third year college student. My daughter is a second year college student. And my youngest Mm. is a High school student, um, my son this past summer was working on a campaign to end child incarceration at the Gathering for Justice, an organization uh, founded by a human being that I have the pleasure of knowing and being around, Mr. Harry Belafonte. Uh, My daughter ran a welcome refugees program at her school, um, and so I've just gotten to see them grow and be wonderful. And I also struggle. I mean, being an activist and organizer in demand, there there are not many Muslim women in our community who are public-facing. Um, and unfortunately it's been very demanding of my time. So I haven't always been around at the important kind of moments, but my kids are also fortunate to have a wonderful support system and a wonderful family and a wonderful everybody around them. So I'm grateful for that, but they've also experienced a lot of trauma as children of an activist who is, um, viciously attacked by different forces. Um, they've had experienced law enforcement at my home, um, uh, talking to me about threats. They have seen the mail. The mail is pretty violent sometimes and pretty disturbing. Obviously they're, they're old enough to be on social media, so I can't shelter them from hate. Um, And so, you know, they've experienced a lot. Um, And sometimes I wonder if they have been as forthright with me about how this world makes them feel. Um, I know any child um, would feel quite the same and traumatized seeing their mom, someone who they love, someone who they know is a loving person be labeled with such hateful, um, rhetoric. So I think yeah. about them often um, in that in that sense. But the proudest thing that I am before an activist and an organizer is a mom to three incredible mm. beings. Man, that's awesome. Like it, it, the the see, often people don't get a chance to hear about the person that is behind the criticism or the person that you know they see on the internet or on television and they assume that headlines are all that there are to know about people. And, and I just love hearing you talk about your kids. And I also am sort of, man, it's, it's kind of devastating, heartbreaking to hear, to imagine, like I have three daughters of my own. So to imagine my daughter seeing me in handcuffs or seeing letters come in the mail with people threatening to take my life and their lives. 
Like that's that is uh, the fact that you go on every day with that is amazing to me. Um, it's such a big deal. I mean, so, I I feel like, and I feel, and and when I have to explain that to my kids, I say, look, I got, I have no choice, and mm. and I explain to them that I do this because I love them. I don't do this from a place of, um, you know, because I think it's cool to be an activist. I think. It, it is because I want to live in a country that loves and embraces my children, and I have to fight for that. Mm. And I told, and I tell them all the time, there hasn't been a hero that you've ever written about or read about. Because I, I force my kids to read anything that I want them to read to understand <laughs> history and context. Right. Um, so I do intercept on the public education system by making my kids read extra stuff, um, even about things like the real life of Rosa Parks and the real kind mm. of context of the life of dr martin luther king i make them i made them watch the king in the wilderness like which is a documentary about dr king's last 18 months of his life literally like three times just so that they can see that it's not just me i'm not an anomaly anyone in our history who has decided um, to stand up to injustice and be bold and brave about it has been attacked and vilified and smeared and and threatened with violence uh and i wanted my kids to know that i am proud to be part of a long lineage in this country of civil rights activists who are putting their lives on the line because we believe we deserve better um, and that we are worthy and that they are worthy. And that's a conversation I have with them often. Every, every time we're sitting down, I say, listen, remember, you are worthy. Mm. You are brilliant. You deserve to thrive in this country. Yeah. Um, there are people who fought for us to be here today, and we're just going to have to fight too. Someone has to take the mantle and continue this fight. Yeah, man. Now, you talked a little bit just now about like the, the reason, the driving force behind your activism. And I, I've watched a couple of interviews that you were. Uh, that you were in, and you talk about how 9-11 was kind of a catalyst moment for you that, mm-hmm. that caused you to get involved in activism. Could you talk a little bit more about like just what inspired you to get involved, what inspires you still to do the things that you do? I mean, the events of 9-11, as everyone knows, was a horrific moment for our entire country. Um, but I was also a New Yorker, and I was a college student at the time, and I was a mom also. And that devastated my city already just by the horrific act and by the thousands of people who were killed at the hands of these terrorists. But immediately after, um, just walking home to my community that day on 9-11, because there was no public transportation and seeing all these Muslim businesses closed down and still not understanding why, because I had not really understood what exactly had happened. There was no Twitter. There was no, you know, uh, like flat screen TVs in my university. Like I had no idea what had happened. All I knew that there was a, you know, a security guard told me that, uh, airplane hit a building and that was pretty much what I knew. And then I saw these Muslim businesses close down as I got closer to my community. I walked into my mom's house um, and my mom was running out of the house without her hijab on, which is her headscarf. And I was like, hey, you forgot to wear your headscarf. And she was like, no, we can't wear it right now. And I was like, what is going on here? And when I got into my mom's house and saw my son, um, who was about two years old at the time, literally being like, mom, look, fire, fire. And I sat down in front of that TV and I started seeing headlines of like Muslim terrorists and it really just started dawning on me. And then just a few days later after 9-11, I was at the mosque, uh, my local mosque, and these women came in crying. And they were like, speaking in my um, language, you know, my uh, my first language was Arabic, although I was born here. I grew up in an immigrant family, so I spoke Arabic first. And they were like, someone came to our home, to our building, and they took my husband. And this other woman was like, me too. And they're crying. And I'm like, what do you mean that someone just came to your house and just took your husband away? And it had been already about five days um, or actually it was the week, the Friday after. So it was maybe like eight days since that had happened and they just hadn't seen their loved ones. And I was like, this is not okay. 
And now, mind you, I'm a sheltered kid in Brooklyn. I grew up with a small business owner father. My mom was a housewife. And my parents really did a good job at sheltering us from the world. And so I was like, this is America. They don't do this in America. Like, this is not okay. Right. And so that was my kind of first opening into what real injustice looks like because it really had hit home for me in my own community. I mean, watching these women who looked like they could be my older sisters crying over their loved ones. So I became a translator. That was my first kind of volunteer job. I started translating for these women looking for legal services. And then from there, I was, um, you know, I went to a space where I just have been here ever since. And I started translating. I started volunteering at an organization called the Arab American Association of New York. And then I became its executive director. And then ever since I have been fighting um, for the civil and human rights of Muslims in America, which of course, as you know, has led me into an intersectional movement of fighting for civil and human rights for black people in America who are also can be Muslim um, for immigrants and undocumented people and for other marginalized people. And so that's how I became an intersectional organizer. But 9-11 was the moment that radicalized me when I said, this is just not okay. You just don't go to people's house and drag them out and make them into a suspect because they share a faith with someone who committed a horrible crime. Yeah. Uh, and so that's, so I've been here ever since. It's been 18 years and here's, and I'm still here. <laughs> well, you talk about intersectionality, which I think is, is one of the things that we talked about when we, when I first met you that I found very fascinating was all of the places where your identity as well as your beliefs and, and, and the things, the activism that you get involved in have all intersected and sometimes maybe mm-hmm. been messy. So like you were the co-founder of the Women's March. And mm-hmm. I know that like from that, that was a, that was a gathering of, of all women. Um, mm-hmm. And in that you have, you are a Palestinian woman, you're a Muslim. So there were Jewish women and Christian women who are a part of that, mm-hmm. that, that organizing and a part of that, that gathering. And I mean, I don't know any other way to say it, to say there's some drama arose from it. Like, how do you manage the intersection of all of the things that, that you believe and being in spaces where there are people who don't believe what you believe that you still have to mm-hmm. work with to carry out justice and to contend for a better world? Like, how, how do you manage that? I mean, it's, we need willing participants um, and people that have to understand that their liberation is bound up with ours. Mm-hmm. And, and, and women in particular who, believe, who must believe and have to believe, because we really have no other choice, that unity is not uniformity. There's no way that we're ever going to be in a movement where all of us are going to agree on everything, because it's not possible. I mean, right. we have families where we don't agree with people within our own families. Exactly. So I don't know how people expect to be in a movement and agree with strangers um, that they oftentimes <laughs> never met before. And it always boggled my mind that there's this imposition that we all have to agree. Right. I don't believe that. I believe that I could be part of a movement with some shared values and shared principles where we believe everyone should be treated with dignity and respect. And sometimes there's going to be moments where there are some policies, some issues that we're not going to agree on. And guess what? We don't have to work on those issues together. Mm-hmm. Um, we can work on the air in the areas where we do agree. Um, and so the Women's March is a great example of, really the obstacles that people of color in particular have um, working in these larger movements that are trying to be intersectional and diverse, um, where we literally um, have to keep explaining ourselves, like what explaining ourselves to, um, you know, white women who understand injustice only when it hits their door, you know, injustice when, uh, you know, uh, when, when, the, when there's an injustice against one group of people and they may be in fact part of the group that's, believes this is such a complicated issue, but for the people who are impacted, it's not very complicated. Mm. And if you're going to be in a movement and say human rights for all, civil rights for all people, then that means all people. You don't get to say on every issue, but not this particular issue. And I'll just go, you know, let's say, let's go to the elephant in the room. 
I'm Palestinian. I, uh, um, I'm a, um, my parents were born in Palestine. I am a descendant of generations of indigenous Palestinian people to the land of Palestine. Yep. I support a nonviolent resistance movement because I am trained in Kingian nonviolence. And I, and I support the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement. I have seen the power of, of this movement, you know, to end or at least almost end all of the South African apartheid. Mm. And, and I believe that people and as Americans, we have every right to engage in boycott and divestment sanctions. And many uh, Christian denominations in this country have decided to be in solidarity with the Palestinian people and have divested mm-hmm. um, from, from settlements and from the state of Israel. And people have a right to do that. You don't have to agree. Right. But we have that right in America to do that. And so and, and I also, as a Palestinian, have particular views that I hold about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And what I say to people all the time is, what do you what kind of views do you expect me to have? You know, <laughs> and that's and that's what I always am very baffled by. I mean, I'm Palestinian. I come from that lineage. I have family who lives under the longest military occupation in modern history. Wow. What am I supposed to believe about that? You know, what 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 exactly do you want me to believe about that? So apparently we're supposed to conform to someone else's beliefs and not have and stand in our own positions you know we talk oftentimes about yeah follow women of color you know you know let women of color lead and then when we do lead when we become leaders in a movement then our choices and our positions are being questioned you know that they don't fall in line um, with others and I'm like who are the others that get to say what the line is or what the what the border is or what the framework is and so for me I've been unapologetic about my positions on certain issues in the framework of human rights for all people. Mm. Um, I believe that in the land of Palestine and Israel, that everybody deserves to live with dignity and, sure. and, and be whole and, and we have the freedom to travel and the freedom to go to school and the freedom to, and access to clean water and to clean air. And I, and I, and I stand by those beliefs. And if it requires that we in America uh, engage in boycott divestments and sanctions to pressure the state of Israel to stand by those ideals and to ensure that the Palestinian people have a right to vote. Um, you know, we talk a lot about voter suppression in the United States right. of America. Well, there are elections that happen in a place like Palestine, Israel, where millions of people do not have any say in the government that occupies them. And mm. that I think is unjust. And I think all people does, does, should be part of this fight yeah. for human rights um, for all people. Yeah. And you said something a while back, like, you got going, and I'm like, I'm not going to interrupt her because this is this is this is fire, and I'm not I'm not I'm not going to douse it. It's fire. But you talked about like how things get complicated, and they're complicated when it's not you. And I love mm-hmm. love love that you said that because oftentimes mm-hmm. with when it comes to sharing ideas of justice with people in the dominant culture, because they're not directly affected by it, it's super complicated. And I think sometimes mm-hmm. what that complications is is actually is that they feel that they will be required to sacrifice something themselves in order to see the other person as human or the other people group as human. And in order to get involved in injustice work, they're like, it's going to cost me something. So it's really complicated because I don't want to be offensive mm-hmm. or whatever. But I just I love that you brought that to light. Uh, and especially it's on all issues. Yeah, for sure. For sure. You know, in police shootings, like when there's a police shooting, we've had so many moments in, in the movement or even with people outside the movement who are trying to figure out, like, maybe this happened because this happened. Maybe let's trying to find every justification, every yes. type of excuse to explain to us why an extrajudicial killing of a black person in our community happened. And as you said, it's because you're not directly impacted by this issue or even on issues of immigration or, mm-hmm. um, you know, today, I mean, I was at a... I was at an immigrant uh, immigration conference and, you know, I say to people all the time, like, look, 
we wouldn't have immigrants coming to our country if we were engaging in policies as the United States of America that was decimating economies and entire countries where people are now looking for refuge and we're to blame for why they're looking for that refuge. <laughs> and then, we're and then all of a sudden we're like, yeah, then we're like, you can't come here. Yeah. And I'm just like, this is not how this 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 works. And so the movements are really complicated. Folks in, in the dominant culture, mostly white folks that come to our movements oftentimes, and this has been the case also, you know, in the civil rights movement, why I preach um, financial support from communities of color for the movement, particularly for uh, lead activists, you know, who are black and brown and making sure that we are funded by the communities that we work with and work for is because we get constrained by who gives us funding, right? Mm, um, you know, people yeah. who are paying, you know, it's kind of like what happened to Dr. Martin Luther King in the last 18 months when he became more militant about being anti-war and standing up against the war in Vietnam when he started kind of coming out a little bit more stronger in his values and things were really crystallizing for him about who he was um, as not just an American activist, but really a global right. uh, symbol of, of human rights, all of a sudden his funders were out and yeah. they were yeah. mostly white. Yeah. And so my thing is like when white people are in the movement and they become a little uncomfortable because something doesn't, you know, is a little, you know, is, is either about them or something they're not comfortable talking about them, they have the luxury of getting up and taking their suitcase and leaving. Yeah. And we don't have that luxury, Corey. I have, I do yeah. not have the luxury to go home to my kids right now and say, look, I'm tired. I just can't do this anymore. Dang. Or something's too complicated for me. I just don't have that yeah. luxury. I wish I did, you know? Yeah. If I did, I, I, w I would love to do that, well, but I can't. <laughs> I've often talked about how uh, amongst some of my white colleagues that are clergy and pastors and, and, and preachers, that they don't have the existential urgency. Yeah, I did just say existential for all of you listening to the existential podcast. They don't have the existential urgency to, to stay in it because if the world doesn't change, they believe deep down inside, I think they believe they'll be just fine. And I think, Linda, what you and I both know is that that's actually not true because you said something way earlier about our liberation is tied together. Like, if mm -hmm. I'm not free, then you're not free. And that idea is so powerful for people to understand that there is, that none of us get to opt out. We may think we get to opt out because it's comfortable to opt out. And for people like you and I, but certainly you on an even grander scale of making people uncomfortable is not a popular thing. And it gets you uh, into some, some really messy situations. Absolutely. I mean, listen, I, a lot of people see me and, and people, you know, I get recognized a lot in a lot of places that I go and, you know, I've gotten, I, I, I won't take for granted that I've gotten great opportunities. Right. Um, but what I tell people is you don't want to be me. Um, <laughs> and it's not fun to be me. Yeah. But what I say to people all the time is like, look, there gotta be some of us who do this. Like I am the person and I am a very, I am very comfortable in being an uncomfortable leader. Yeah. I do not go into places to conform. I go to places to challenge. I'm not there to put people down. I don't undermine people. I don't vilify. I don't smear people. There are obviously white allies that we have in our movement and being able to work through it with white allies to say, what is your role in this movement? Mm -hmm. Your role is to amplify and to uplift the most marginalized and broken people in this country. Yeah. Your job is to find resources to ensure that these marginalized people have what they need to be whole people in this movement to fight for all of us, right? And your, 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 your job is to find those places and platforms for us to be able to speak about um, issues within the white communities that you're all a part of. The bottom line is here in 2016, I and mean, we don't have to take it back to, you know, 
400 years ago or 250 years ago, let's take it back just to a few years ago in 2016, 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump. And then people said, well, that was 2016, Linda, we come on, we've, we've come away, haven't we? Well, let's look at a state like Georgia. I mean, in, in 2018, when Stacey Abrams was running to be the first black woman governor of Georgia, a highly qualified woman, yeah. um, probably more qualified than that job even requires, and 76% of white women voted for a racist, bigot white man in Georgia. Mm-hmm. That's not my data. Those are not my statistics, Corey. Those were the exit polls. So my thing is, like, what do white women need to understand that their liberation is, in fact, aligned and intertwined with our liberation? That's just the bottom line. Yeah. These anti-abortion bills, like, they predominantly uh, impact women of color for sure, mm-hmm. but they really impact all women. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just trying, I'm, I'm just always baffled. Like, I sit back and I'm like, what is going on here? And I'm not going to lie to you. When we, before we went to the Women's March, me and Tamika Mallory and Carmen Perez, all women of color, went to organize with the women at the Women's March in the beginning. The Black women, particularly our Black elders, were like, I don't know what y'all doing. Don't go in there. And we were like, what do you mean? They lived, seriously, like, they sat us down. They were like, look, this is not going to work. And I was like, what do you mean? They were like, look, have you not understood history? They said, when, has it, when have you ever seen an intersectional movement where white women actually let Black women or brown women lead? Wow. And in fact, have you ever seen a movement or a moment in history where when white women got whatever it is they were fighting for, right? They actually stayed in the fight till we got what we needed. Never happened. And they were right. Like, I mean, you can go back to the suffrage Mm. movement and you can see that directly. Man. Man. (laughs) I want to shift gears a little bit because, like, I'm... You just have so much to say that this is fascinating to me. Hopefully it's fascinating to everybody that's listening. If it's not, I, I don't know what's wrong with you. Uh, but I, I, I heard you say something once about your hijab um, and its importance mm-hmm. to you. Um, and and you, talked about it, you talked about it in a way that sounded ancient and sacred to me because I know in ancient times, people, what they wore, spoke to the world about what they believed and you actually talked about it being a spiritual thing, not just a tradition or just even a, 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 a faith practice that's just practical, but you talked about it being a spiritual thing for you um, to make sure that you wear the hijab in public and that you're seen in that. Could you talk a little bit about the spirituality of that and what it means to you, not just the hijab, but, but being a, a Muslim woman? I think hijab is a really interesting conversation because it's been so politicized yeah. around the world. And for me, my hijab um, represents a few things for me. It represents my spirituality, my connection to my God, my connection to my faith. It also is an opportunity for me to do, see it as part of my identity. So when I'm walking down the street, you may not know what country my parents were from. You may not know even if I was indigenous to this land, but you do know that I'm a Muslim, that that piece of, piece of cloth I'm wearing on my head is something that identifies me to people, even if they don't have a conversation mm-hmm. with me. And it also sometimes does start a conversation. I can be standing at a bus stop somewhere and someone's like, hey, I was always curious, like, why do Muslim women wear that? And being able to kind of share why, um, why I wear um, hijab. And the reason why uh, my hijab is also important and, and me using it as a conversation starter and, this, and, and central to who I am and you know, how people remember me when they see me in a space is that around the world, um, it, hijab is treated quite differently. I mean, so for example, you know, I want to be very unequivocal that, you know, I abhor governments 
for example, like in Iran, who force women to wear hijab, yeah. right? Force women who do not want yeah. to wear hijab. And in fact, imprison some who engage in protest about uh, being forced to wear hijab. But I also abhor governments like France, um, who ban women from wearing mm -hmm. hijab, um, particularly in public universities and in public sector jobs. And in fact, we're not even allowed to wear long sleeve bathing suits at you know, in France wow. on the beach. Um, that's just how outrageous. And so I always say to women in particular, um, particularly white um, feminists um, who have oftentimes looked at and looked down upon women around the world who wear hijab um, and seen it as some sort of oppressive, um, you know, some sort of like patriarchal symbol of patriarchy, that I'm a woman who has chose um, to wear hijab and that I should be respected and my agency should be respected as someone who has chosen to wear this cloth, uh, cloth at my head and to understand that there are some Muslim women who do not wear hijab and hijab is not necessarily an indication of someone being more faithful. Um, and that faith for us in Islam is something in the heart um, and, you know, obviously in your daily practices. But that for me, it's a very important part of my identity um, and it is connected to my spirituality. But just if, you, if, if I'm telling folks, if you see a Muslim woman without a hijab, I don't want you to judge her and say, well, she must not be that religious because she doesn't wear hijab because that's not actually how hijab works or how, mm -hmm. how faith works um, in the Muslim community. And, you know, so for me, it's important um, part of my identity. And I think one important thing that I saw manifest visibly is right after the Women's March, if you remember, one of the most iconic photos of the resistance against this fascist administration has become a woman in a hijab. Um, it became a sign of the revolution. It's literally all over. I go to people's offices, homes, and people have this beautiful poster of a woman wearing an American flag hijab. Um, and it became something that people held up to say, this is what resistance to fascism looks like. It looks like a Muslim woman in a hijab. Yeah. And that makes me very proud in the post 9-11 America that young little Muslim girls around the country see ordinary people, black people, and, uh, you know, all kinds of immigrants and white people holding up a, 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 a poster that has a woman wearing a hijab and saying, this is what America looks like. This is what my America looks like. Um, and so that's really, that really shows me that not only is this a sign of spirituality, but it has been become a sign of um, compassion and solidarity um, in that's the United dope. States. What, what has your interaction been like with um, Christians in America? I, I, and I, I will say that my interaction with Christians in America is pretty damn annoying. So, and I am a person who professes yeah. the Christian faith. So what is it, what has your interaction been like with, with Christians uh, as, as a Muslim woman? I would say quite diverse and varies across the board. Okay. Um, I have had wonderful interactions with congregations and Christians around the country. I have, I do a lot of organizing with Universalist Unitarians, the UUs, um, and some of the Methodist uh, churches around the country. I've done really great work in Baptist, Baptist, uh, Black Baptist churches, particularly in where I'm from in Brooklyn and have great relationships with um, Black pastors um, um, in many parts of the Northeast in particular. I think for me, it has been um, oftentimes uh, a lot of education and a lot of um, relationship building. Um, and of course, questions and you know a lot of uh, lack of knowledge about what it is to be Muslim and, 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 and things like that. One of the things that I do and one of the rules I have around interfaith is that I'm not going to do interfaith for the, for the sake of you know, humanizing myself to Christians and trying to be like, see, I follow the same God yeah. as you. And, you know, my God's your God. And <laughs> we follow the God of Abraham. Like, I don't do that. My, my interfaith work is rooted in social justice. It's about what parts of our faith traditions can we bring to the table that will help us uplift those in our communities who are broken and harmed and marginalized. And so I've done a lot of, again, great work with, you know, 
churches around immigration and immigrant rights and sanctuary. I've done a lot of organizing around criminal justice reform. With, and there are, of course, Christians, some of my opposition, um, most of whom are conservative evangelical Christians and Christian Zionists um, who are quite interestingly believed uh, or, or have some unequivocal support for the state of Israel and for Jews. That is a very twisted uh, type of, of solidarity where they believe in some sort of crazy rapture that's going to come. So we support Israel and the Jews until there's a rapture and you all get destroyed. It's like really weird. Um, and so, of course, those are some of my top opposition um, in this country and Christians who have labeled or tried to build a narrative around Islam being this like really violent and, you know, backwards faith um, and that we don't want it here in America. When interestingly enough, Corey, I've never seen any organized Muslims or any organized Muslim opposition to, you know, same-sex marriage or to, you know, to uh, reproductive rights or to LGBTQ rights, or I've never seen anti-Muslim, I mean, excuse me, anti-immigrant uh, organized, you know, opposition. Like, I really don't see it. I actually see the Muslim yeah. community really as a marginalized community finding their way in a larger movement of solidarity that says, look, we could hold whatever religious views we have. We can have our own religious convictions, but we live in America in a land of civil rights and human rights for all people, and we are going to work to ensure that everybody in this country gets to, to live with dignity and in safety um, and get to thrive, um, and that includes us as Muslims as well. Uh, so, yep, so I think Christian, my interactions with Christians, unfortunately, have been quite horrific or quite fabulous, um, where I've seen yeah. Christian communities really step up and, and and I say to some of my Christian family who I've been able to organize with like you know listen I've learned from them that Jesus was a socialist you know activist organizer a Jewish refugee um, and I tell people all the time that the Jesus that my faith also depicts um, was a man who always chose the most marginalized most oppressed uh, most discarded people of the societies in which he was um, alive in, and that's the Jesus that I um, love in my faith, and the Jesus that I know that loves me, because uh, he's a very important wow. figure in Islam. In fact, Jesus is mentioned tons more time in the in, in our holy book than our own beloved Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings be upon him. We have designated an entire chapter in the holy book of the Quran to Mary, literally a whole chapter just designated to this very holy woman in our faith, and I think if more Christians knew how much we loved Jesus and saw him as an example um, and saw Mary um, as central to our faith, they would really see their brotherhood, sisterhood, siblinghood much more closer to us as Muslims. Yeah, for, for sure. No question about that. And I think it's tragic to me that, that people don't take enough time to have conversations with people about things like this to know what other people believe. And I have a good friend who says that if you can't articulate back to me what I believe or what I said, Mm -hmm. before you start saying you disagree, you don't actually disagree. You, you're just Absolutely. disagreeable. You know what I'm saying? It's oh, not that you disagree with what I believe. You're just disagreeable. So I, and I, so I don't know how much time you have left. I would love to ask you a couple more questions if, if, if you've got yeah, time. Sure. Um, so I know that there was like some, some hot water, if you will, I guess is the term I'd use. Um, people, people started labeling you as anti-Semitic, mm -hmm. which... Um, I'd like you to speak to, because as a person who, and I'm listening to you talk, as a person who is willing to sit down with just about anybody to do the work of anti-racism, anti, you know, of, of justice in the world, 
Like, where did all this anti-Semitism stuff come from? Is it still something that's ongoing? Like, how have you dealt with that? Absolutely. I mean, I have been almost two decades now working very closely with um, Jewish leaders and Jewish American organizations, progressive Jewish American organizations. So my track record is very clear. The anti-Semitism is very clear. It's a label uh, that gets put on people who are unequivocal in their support of the Palestinian people. I just happen to also be Palestinian. And groups that are not invested in the rights of Palestinian people um, are seeing a big shift in this country, Corey, particularly amongst young people and young people of color who are starting to see the importance of this global social justice issue and seeing Palestine as a global justice issue for all and seeing it on the college campuses and seeing Democratic candidates and uh, folks running for office like Ilhan Omar and Rashida and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Congresswoman like Betsy McCollum and others who are becoming a lot more vocal about their public support for the Palestinian people. So our foreign policy shifting, our um, the, the approach of the majority of American people, particularly young people, to that issue, watching the uh, uh, trips of, of young Black activists in America who are going to Palestine to learn about the struggle um, in the tradition of you know Desmond Tutu, in the tradition of Nelson Mandela and his solidarity with the Palestinian people. And so my, my particular role um, is basically uh, has been um, extremely scrutinized as someone who people see is a reflection of the shift um, of the way in which the American public views Palestine and Palestinians right now. So basically, anti-Semitism is a way to chill free speech about Palestine. And for me, I embody all of it. So I feel like it's not that people are directly trying to target me as an individual, but they see me as a as an example. So they want to make an example out of me. And so what's the best thing to what's the best thing to do to silence critics is you call them anti-Semitic. You make them so radioactive that nobody wants to bring them to their convention. No one wants to give them a platform. No one wants to publish their books. Nobody wants to put them on national television. And and for me, I'm very fortunate that it has kind of backfired many times um, because that's not who I am. You know, I'm Palestinian. I stand by my critiques of the state of Israel as I critique the uh, United States of America. No one calls me anti-American. Okay, maybe some do. But generally speaking, anyone who critiques America is not anti-American. I also critique the country of Saudi Arabia, um, and I never have been called an Islamophobe for doing that. Um, So for me, I'm I'm pretty confident who who I am, and these labels have really uh, been used over and over again for me, almost for the last 10 years, but much more recently as my, my profile has grown. Um, and I reject it. And I reject all forms. I, I reject that label, but I also reject all forms of racism. And my work has been very clear. Yeah. I have act, engaged in acts of solidarity to the Jewish community that are visible and have been recorded and have been appreciated um, by members of the Jewish community. So I'm like, look, you, you got to keep hating. Um, <laughs> and if that's what you want to do, that's on you. Um, but who I am is clear and I'm going to stand in my For sure. Yeah. And so that was we had a conversation, right, when we we met about people wanting you to condemn Minister Farrakhan for his anti-Semitic and homophobic and misogynistic views and statements that he's made over the years. And you talk about how you refuse to do that. And, and I, I was like, I was really, um, I don't know if disturbed, convicted, I don't know the term to use, but it, it sat with me. Because when we were talking, I thought about how many times I've expected people to condemn Trump or this white evangelical pastor or whatever, and you said something to me that I want you to to, to talk a little bit more about about mm-hmm. how um, 
in the Christian tradition, we would call this not wrestling with flesh and blood. Uh, one of the verses that, that people go to about spiritual warfare, which has always, for me, been felt hollow at times because it's like it's a way for us to excuse dealing with things here and now to only deal with things metaphorically or abstractly. And I don't believe that's what you're talking about, but you you kind of hinted to something that's like, I don't attack the person. There is a principle that a person might hold that I have something to say about, but I just want you to talk to, to that whole thing about the Farrakhan, um, why you didn't come out and, and, and talk against what he was saying or who he was, and, and what you told me that day just was really, really impactful. So I, I would love my listeners to hear you talk a little bit more about that. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, again, trained in Kingian nonviolence. And one of the most important um, uh, principles of Kingian nonviolence is attack the forces of evil and not those doing evil, which means that we attack racism and we, ta- we attack anti-Semitism and Islamophobia and homophobia and transphobia and ageism and sexism and misogyny without going after that direct person um, who's engaging in that behavior. And to be very clear, um, I have said publicly over and over again, I've written about this. I vehemently disagree with the minister Farrakhan. I'm, I vehemently reject um, his anti-Semitic statements and homophobic statements and other statements that I don't agree with. Um, and I want to make that unequivocal. And I'm not afraid to say that. And, and in fact, minister Farrakhan would never consider himself to be part of the progressive movements that I'm a part of. Um, in fact, I'm pretty positive that he rejects a lot of the uh, values and the issues um, um, that myself and Tamika work around every single day, and that's just the bottom line. But what I say to people all the time is that, you know, it's very hard for me as a person who's not Black um, to stand up and and, and to denounce a Black man in America, right? Particularly a Black man from an organization like the Nation of Islam that has actually done great good in the communities that they are a part of, engaging in food pantries and supporting single mothers and and, and re-entry programs for people who have come out of prisons. And they have lifted so many people. I'm from Brooklyn. I've seen their work in places like Harlem. And you can go to the Muslim communities and other Black communities in Detroit and in Chicago and in Georgia and so many other places. And so for me, you know, taking the leadership of Tamika to say, listen, we vehemently disagree with the minister Farrakhan and we hear you to our Jewish sisters and brothers and we understand this is hurtful. Um, But we also wanted to have a nuanced conversation and that we believe we should have because our dominant culture and white people in America, all of a sudden when it's about them or someone leader in their community, they want, uh, they want to ask us for grace and they want to ask us for nuance and we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But when it comes to condemning Uh, communities of colors and leaders in our community, um, immediately there's like, we demand that you say this. And if you don't say it the way that we want you to say it, then we're, you're just deleted off the face of the earth. This is just not how things are going to work. And, and so for me, you know, I personally, Corey never met the minister Farrakhan. I never met the minister Farrakhan, but if you would read all the articles and all the op-eds, you would think that, you know, I was like having dinner with him every night for like a year. Like it was, it's just so misleading. Um, And, and, and again, you know, this, this, this rejection of like black leaders. And also Minister Farrakhan has, has been this political like litmus test for decades. And we've known it. they used it as, against Jesse Jackson. They used it against Keith Ellison during the DNC chairmanship election. They used it against members of Congress. I mean, they used it against, you know, so many different people. And I think there's got to come a point where mm-hmm. enough is enough. We reject Minister Farrakhan's <laughs> statements. Absolutely. But why are we always making this conversation about the Minister Farrakhan? We got to understand that there are white supremacists 
that literally are walking into synagogues Jeez. and killing innocent Jews. We have to focus on the real threats to our community. And while we can stand and vehemently disagree with the Minister Farrakhan, it is not members of the Nation of Islam who are engaging in violent acts against Jewish people or against white people or against our communities. In fact, no one in the Nation of Islam have, has ever been charged with attacking or or murdering people in the Jewish community or in other white communities. It just never happened. Um, so there's no track record or precedent there. But there is definitely a track record of white supremacists and white nationalists harming Muslim communities and immigrant communities and Jewish communities in America. And that's what I want my white sisters and brothers to. Let's come together and agree that there are real threats to our community. And that's where we need to focus our efforts. And I also understand that I can, I will vehemently disagree with Muslim leaders in my community or other leaders um, in the movements that I'm a part of. But this idea of denounce and condemn and throw people away, I don't think that's okay. Because I yeah. also believe in redemption. I believe in people, uh, pe that their people can evolve. And I know people will say, well, Minister Farrakhan's been saying that for, you know, so long. But I also will not take what Minister Farrakhan says and say that everybody in the Nation of Islam um, inherently, because their leader has said anti-Semitic things, are all these anti-Semitic people running around our communities. I just don't, in fact, believe that. Um, because I don't believe that that's who all the nation of Man, Islam members are. So good, so good. So as 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 we as we wrap up, I want to get to what you're doing now. I know you just wrote a book called "We Are Not Here to Be Bystanders: A Memoir of Love and Resistance." Um, what went into making that book? The, the title? Why did you write the book? Could you just talk a little bit about that book? And and then after that, just talk to us about what you're working on now, and and how we as 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 people can support you in, in your contending for a better world. Thank you, Corey, so much um, for this opportunity. Yes, I uh, did write a book. Um, it's called We Are Not Here to Be Bystanders. And that title for me is something that I wanted people to have forever um, because we are not here to be bystanders. We are not here to be bystanders to injustice against any community. I wholeheartedly believe that God put us on this earth to test us um, and to give us blessings and to see how we use our blessings to uplift his creation. And so my book is really about me telling my own story in my own words, me defining who I am and being able to take people on a journey of how did I get here? What were the things in my upbringing? What were the things I learned from my culture, from my faith, from my parents, from the communities that I grew up in that made me the person that I am today? You know, taking people on a journey of understanding how my liberation was bound up with the liberation of Black people in America, with yeah. undocumented people, with so many communities, and that I know and I knew at a very early age that I could not ever win full rights for my community if other communities did not too have their full rights. And so it is a story where I share a lot of personal things. I share the, you know, the, the, the death of my mentor, um, who I and her were in a car accident together. I was the driver of that car. So I share a lot of painful, traumatic moments of my life. Um, but I, I also share triumphs and moments um, where we won as a community in building solidarity with one another. Um, and so I hope people uh, read my own words, um, read my own story, and allow me to define for you who I am. Mm. And you can then make judgment after reading my words yeah. and reading my story and reading my experiences. Um, you know, it is, uh, my book is already out uh, for pre-sale if people want to pre-order it. Um, I haven't done too much um, promotion around it because it's not really coming out. Uh, it won't hit the stands till March 3rd, 2020, okay. but it is coming out. And I'm really proud um, of that piece of work. And I hope it's a classic. My forward uh, for my book was written by the legendary Harry Belafonte, okay. um, and he is uh, a, a, per, a person who's a legend yeah. and someone who I love so much. And, you know, he's he's older now, um, and he's kind of gotten to those last stages of mm -hmm. his life, um, and he's done so much for us. So I was very honored to have gotten 
him to write a forward, which really is a letter to me, but more as an extension um, of a letter to all of us. And I hope that people are moved by what Mr. Belafonte also has to say. Awesome. So so now you are a surrogate for Bernie Sanders. And so I know that's a part of what you're busy doing now. Is there anything else going on in your activism work that you're currently focused on? Yep. So I will be um, organizing in six states in 2020 in Wisconsin and Ohio and Michigan and Pennsylvania and Florida and Texas, really trying to move the Muslim vote in hopes that we defeat fascism in 2020. So you'll see me on the streets and organizing volunteers, training organizers, because we have to win. There's literally like no choice. Um, and I believe in this. And I'm ready to do everything that yeah. I can to make yeah. this happen. Um, so that's part of my work. And obviously, I am a surrogate for the Bernie Sanders campaign. So, of course, I believe, mm-hmm. you know, that he's the man. Um, to get the job done and really to bring transformative change to America. I'm tired of incrementalism. I'm tired of people telling me um, you can only get this or this is practical. Um, my worthiness is not about practicality. It's about allowing people in our country to thrive and to get access to all the things that we deserve, like healthcare and like uh, higher education um, and so many other things. And so that's why I'm with Bernie. And then I'm going to be moving that Muslim vote in hopes that we win this general election. Linda, so, so dope. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I, I, I just, I appreciate so much of what you said and, and just who you are, what you represent. I just, I'm, I'm inspired to see you, your story, to see how you move in the world and, and, and what you're doing, what you're up to. Man, I love how confidently Linda stands in her space as a human being and shares what she believes and contends for a better world in ways that are just astounding and amazing, messy, but she continues to move forward despite opposition because she believes in freedom and justice and peace and shalom. I love it. I love it. I love it. Linda, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for all of you who listened to it. I'd like to, of course, thank Comfort Fit for the music. The song, again, is called Sorry. I'd love for you to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already, because I just don't want you to miss an episode. If you have not yet done a review or rated the podcast, please let us know what you think of it. Write a review. Take a couple minutes, write a review. It doesn't take that long to click whatever star you want to click, but I would just love it if you would take the time to do that. And thank you for being people. If you're listening to this, thank you for being the kind of people who are contending for a better world one conversation at a time.